Well, we have come to the heart of the matter in our journey through Matthew. These next two chapters, 26 and 27, N.T. Wright compares them to a massive El Capitan-type cliff jutting suddenly out of the landscape and overshadowing everything around it. Actually, he compares it to some Swiss Alp that I've never heard of, but it sounds like El Capitan and his description of it. So, you know, since I'm a Californian, I'm taking a little interpretive liberty. Point being, this is what this whole story has been building towards. All the foreshadowing and ominous warnings, all the times Jesus told the disciples what was to come and why and was ignored by them, which brings up one of those questions that I'm sure many of us have had who have read through the gospel stories a couple times. Why are the disciples so dense? It all seems pretty clear. Jesus says it over and over. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed by the chief priests and the Romans, and then I'm going to rise again after three days. So why don't the disciples get it? And just as importantly for us, how can we not fall into that same trap, the trap of not seeing, not getting what God is doing in our day, the way the disciples didn't get it in theirs. Of course, it's not all the disciples who are dense. In the beginning of chapter 26, right before Judas goes and betrays Jesus to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver, and right after we hear that the chief priests have officially hatched plans to do away with Jesus, sandwiched right in the middle of that story of betrayal by those who should have gotten it, We have this story. Verse 6. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. In the Gospel of John, we get some more details about this story, some of which we'll come back to in a minute. But they include that it happened six days before the Passover, quite a bit earlier than where Matthew places it. But Matthew has it here, in the middle of the story of the chief priests and Judas, because he wants us to read these stories in light of each other. The men who don't get it, the woman who does. I say that the woman who's unnamed in Matthew's version of the story, that she gets it for a couple of reasons. First, she sees that acts of great love for Jesus aren't always rational. By a pure, rational, cost-benefit analysis, surely there was a better plan here. Sell the perfume, give, I don't know, 95% of it to the poor, you know, like Jesus' followers are supposed to do, right? And then with the 5% or whatever left over, you could still buy something that would adequately make the point of your devotion and love for Jesus. You know, this is how you give gifts to someone you love, right? Go through a cost-benefit analysis of the minimum amount you need to spend in order to adequately convey your feelings? No? I'm pretty sure Meredith has spent a good deal of our relationship trying to get me to not think in that way. But extravagant, irrational acts of love for Jesus are exactly what are appropriate for the king. This woman understands it. The disciples don't. But then there's an even deeper thing going on here. The woman is anointing Jesus, and one might assume she's anointing him for his coronation as king. After all, as John tells us, this event happens right before Jesus' triumphal entry. The king has come. Anoint him. Except this isn't quite right. In both this story and in John, Jesus tells us that the woman's motivation is not to anoint Jesus for his triumphal coronation. It's to anoint him for burial. So I'm going to take Jesus at his word here as far as the woman's motivation. I'm using the radical interpretive strategy of taking what Jesus says seriously 
<laughs> Call me crazy. But what this means is that what this woman gets is really profound. She sees that, number one, Jesus is the king, and number two, he's about to be executed as a criminal. And so he deserves to be anointed, not as a king for his coronation, but as a king for his burial. And since his execution will be as a rebel against Rome, the anointing needs to happen before his death, because there's no guarantee that the anointing could happen afterwards. Who knows what the Romans will do with the body? There's a very real chance that she won't get to grieve properly after her king's death. And so she's going to take her chance now to show her love for him. Jesus is the king who will be killed. The Messiah who not only isn't about to kick out the Romans, he's about to be killed by them. So far as any of the gospels tell us, the male disciples find it impossible to hold those two true thoughts in their heads together. What happens when the male disciples do finally get it into their heads that Jesus is about to die? They try to fight, and then when Jesus tells them to put away their swords, they flee for their lives. How can the king be killed? But the women are there as Jesus carries his cross to his death. They're there at the foot of the cross as he dies. They're there at the tomb while the men hide in a darkened room. What Matthew saw was a whole group of male disciples unable to even begin to understand what was going on, who Jesus was, how the kingdom was going to come, and then a woman who saw it all perfectly and whose story, as Jesus says, will be remembered forever. John tells us that the woman who anoints Jesus in this way is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And there are two main other stories about Mary in the Gospels, which shed interesting light, I think, on this one. First, you may remember that Lazarus is Jesus's friend, whose death Jesus weeps over, and who Jesus raises from death to life. The male disciples knew this too, of course. They had been there and seen it happen. But I wonder if part of why Mary gets it, to the degree that she does, is that she saw her brother dead and then alive again. And so when she hears Jesus saying that his death is coming, but that he will rise to life on the other side, she thinks, of course, death is no problem for Jesus. He's king not just over Israel or the Romans or the world. He's king over death as well. I've seen it. I know it. But there's one more story about Mary and Martha in the Gospels. It shows up in Luke chapter 10, and I think it's a fascinating comparison with this story, almost a mirror image of it in some ways. In this story from Matthew, Mary anoints Jesus, an extravagant, irrational, emotional act that the male disciples see as too much, too extravagant, too emotional, too irrational, just like a woman, they think. Undignified, too. In John's account, she lets down her hair to dry Jesus off, which culturally would have been seen about like if a woman today were to take off her shirt to do the same job. So not only like a woman, which was very much a pejorative in and of itself in those days, but a loose woman, a shameful one. But Jesus says, no, you should be more like this woman. She gets it in a way you don't. In the story in Luke, we have almost a mirror image of this. In Luke, Mary's sister Martha is scrambling around taking care of the house while her sister Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, learning from the master. The point is often made that Mary is sitting where the male disciples would have been, at the feet of Jesus. And her sister complains to Jesus, again in a mirror, mirror image of the disciples complaining to Matthew. Jesus, I'm running around, doing what a good woman's supposed to do, and here's my sister acting like a man. Tell her to get it together and help me. Many of you have experienced yourself, or know of women who have experienced, the restrictions in certain parts of Christendom for how a woman might be a disciple, who they can or can't teach, when they can or can't use their gifts, how they should or should not look while they do it. 
But here, Jesus's response, again, in a mirror image of the story we started with, is to say, no, Mary has chosen the better option. Mary, sitting in a culturally male space, is called out by her sister for not being what a woman is supposed to be. Mary, acting in a culturally female way, is called out by the male disciples for being too much, too female. Jesus, in both cases, holds Mary up as the ideal disciple. Mary's identity is in following Jesus, not being a good, respectable woman, which means she does what she ought as a disciple, whether or not it conforms to the gender norms of the day, to use a term that we use today, but they probably wouldn't. And what I want to ask us to consider today is whether all these pieces might be connected. Might it be that the very reason that Mary gets it is that she has put following Jesus over the other parts of her identity? The male disciples want to follow Jesus, sure, but to do so in a culturally acceptable male way. We'll be rational and dignified and unemotional. And Jesus says, okay, but you're missing out on the joy and life and truth that Mary can see by doing that. The male disciples know how the kingdom is going to come. (laughs) despite Jesus's constant words to the contrary. They need to be brave and strong. They'll fight. And Jesus will aid them in their battle against Rome and against the corrupt leaders of the temple. The kingdom will come, in other words, in a very stereotypically male way. But then when it doesn't, they abandon Jesus and flee for their lives because they can't conceive that life might actually be found in a different, not stereotypically male sort of way. When our identity becomes an idol, It does what any idol does. It leads us away from life. Whether that's our gender identity, our racial identity, our sexual identity, our national identity, even our parental identity or professional identities, any identity that is not our identity as a follower of Jesus, part of the family of God. It seems to me that Mary got it, at least in part, because she was willing to act and think and be different than the identities she had inherited from her culture but in accordance with the identity that God had given to her. So she would learn and study and be emotional and extravagant because that's who God had made her and called her to be. And because of that, because her identity as who God made her to be hadn't been stunted and forced into a cultural box, she was able to see, to get it in a far deeper way and far earlier than the rest. Our culture has been waking up to the damage that making idols out of identities can do both to individuals and to the world. And this conversation, I think, has a lot of implications in any number of directions. What we did as a church after this sermon was to listen to some stories from the people in our community who had felt the tension between who God had made them to be and who our culture had uh, told them that they ought to be. And that was a really enriching experience as we considered how that might play out in people's actual stories. So I'd invite you to reflect on that as well and how your own identity has been in tension with what culture invites you to be and how maybe following Jesus might invite you to different spots. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.